The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. talking space no i'm not sawyer i'm not gene this is mark it's sunday january 30th and we're recording show number 305 we got something special which is why they let me have the microphone for just a second we got a special guest but first let's introduce our panel sawyer how are you today i'm doing great mark it's great to hear you at the helm tonight yeah driving the bus everybody hold on gene welcome as well Hey, Mark. Good evening. Can't wait to go ahead and start talking tonight. This is going to be fun. I don't think I've done this for a while. I hope I don't. Uh, hope I don't mess up. Gina, how, how are you tonight? I'm just wondering why nobody would suspect that you were me instead of Sawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest tonight is somebody that I I stumbled across on Twitter, and I I think that that she actually followed me by some strange coincidence of, of Twitter followers because so much of Twitter is nonsense, but uh, I appreciate some really sharp people that I found. And this is, this is one of my new friends. Um, the person we're going to introduce is a woman who is a historian, spaceflight, and science writer. And right away, that's something that, that got my attention. Uh, her education has involved some focus on spaceflight in recent years. And from Tempe, Arizona, I'd like to introduce Amy Title. Welcome to Talking Space. Hi, Mark. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. we got some questions we'll roll into, and um, appreciate you being with us tonight. Amy, I've got a, a kind of a general question for you. I've realized in looking at your blog that... Um, I think of America's space program as Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, the space shuttle, and I never really caught on to the fact that there were a lot of decisions that were made even at the uh, in the early days that defined what type of spacecraft the Mercury capsule was. Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of add a little bit of depth to my my limited grasp of that because again I've always thought of mercury as the the capsule that uh, that John Glenn and Alan Shepard and and the rest of the mercury 7 road and and I realized there were decisions that that brought that into play what what happened prior to that first launch um, in terms of designing the capsule in terms of, of sort of the choices that that made the capsule the vehicle to go with yeah, yeah. Um, from from everything that I've been been looking at and studying, it seems like it was the fastest and cheapest way to get an American in space as fast as possible. Um, and it, it was in, by no means desirable, and it was 
not intended actually gemini was not even originally intended to follow the same design but it was it just became a matter of time that they needed to find something that would be able to go up fast and be mass produced and as easy as possible to pilot which is what happened in mercury i mean they had almost no control because it was entirely automated and sort of they sort of unraveled the, the capsule a little bit is sort of how i mentally think of it in Gemini to make it a little bit more pilotable and controllable. So I, I think simplicity in the, the name of was the name of the game in the first round of the initial decisions that determined that the capsule was it. It's interesting to realize that it really was a race. And that's the part that I, that I did catch a real grasp of is that it was the, the whole object to, to catch up to the Soviets and to pass them mm-hmm. and to do more than they had done. And uh, also, they were kind of ahead of us in a lot of the early events, weren't they? Until about 1965, they had most of the firsts. Although, it's kind of, it, it's a little bit tough to say that they were necessarily beating the U.S. in the most strictest of terms. A, a lot of it, I mean, their first uh, multi-crew flight, I think three cosmonauts, was just done by not letting them wear spacesuits. So there was enough space to have three men inside with no protection. Um, so there's some interesting sort of corner cutting, but at the same time, they did have the technology to do that before the Americans. So there's a very interesting sort of give and take between the two programs of which valued safety over speed over national prestige. I mean, the it's it's in- interesting when you look at, especially from the more modern perspective of the Soviet stuff, what has been uncovered since the 1960s and 70s, since it's no longer a strict war going on. Yeah, it, Amy, was it wasn't it true that's sort of though that the that the decision to to launch that particular I think that was I, I forget which uh, which which Vashkod mission that was that was essentially Khrushchev's downfall, wasn't it? I mean, the, the decision to go ahead and launch that, those those three cosmonauts with uh, with all those folks, uh, you know, without protection, as you as you put it, with no no uh, pressure suits at all, which was a, a real big roll of the dice, and a lot of that was just um, uh, you know prestige oriented. That was, mm-hmm. but that wasn't that sort of what Khrushchev, you know, Khrushchev's downfall, if you will. That's one of the other reasons why he was kind of sort of dethroned for 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 putting the, those folks at risk. You know, I don't actually have a good answer for that. Um, most of the Soviet stuff I've been doing, to be honest, has been in the earlier stages. So I'm not right. not actually sure about how the sort of politics that were involved in the Soviet space system or space program played out. I have the the question I have is is more generic. How did you get started on this? What was really the the thing that kind of spurred you on in space? I mean, for me, it was Apollo. Um, as a you know four or five year old sort of transfixed watching Neil Armstrong and and Buzz Aldrin you know cavort on yeah. the moon if you were, what was what was your your defining moment um, that got you sort of into this and and you know as a passion? Um, I I sort of started reading about space. I I did a project on Venus in the second grade, and I just thought it was so amazing that this planet that was like the earth turned inside out was close enough that I could see it without binoculars in the night sky and I just thought that was amazing so I started reading about it and came across Neil Armstrong and started I just was totally blown away that there were people who'd actually walked on another body in the solar system and from seven onwards I just started trying to find out as much as I could about them and realized at the end of my undergrad that I could actually study this stuff and you know (laughs) truly combine my passions of space with 
my academic pursuits. So it was it was a happy meeting. Yeah, I'll be blunt. Your your blog, um, which if uh, folks are so inclined, is vintagespace.wordpress.com. Uh, is something that it, I mean, it feels like something I would have written. I mean, it's 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 really really well written. It goes into a lot of things about you know the X15 and and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And and I was Thanks. I was yeah, yeah really I, I thought it was uh, really quite a uh, uh, quite a ride. So if anybody wants to go ahead and then is so inclined, I I really encourage you to do it. Fasten your seatbelts and and because it's one heck of a ride. Um, you had some very interesting things to say about the space shuttle program, though. Uh, there was one post, and I'm, I'm going to just bring it up here, if you, if I can beg your indulgence here, real quick. Yeah. So I have I have it sort of marked here on here. Here we go. Of space shuttles and landing systems, you were sort of expounding why you know certain landing systems were used the way they were. But mm-hmm. you had an interesting comment about the shuttle program, and you just kind of said that. Uh, you really never found it all that exciting and 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 just really didn't think much of it. Can you expound a little bit on that? Um, yeah, I it's it's sort of a hard thing to explain, and I think it might be generational. I mean, I I'm not that old. I was definitely not around in Apollo. So I've sort of always lived with the space shuttle in the background, but I've also been aware that it's never produced something as exciting as a moon landing. I'm not aware of, I mean, maybe I'm just not into this enough, but I'm not aware of any real world-changing, earth-shattering science that has come from the space shuttle or anything really, really important that has made me want to study it more. I think the most interesting thing about it is it's the way it lands from, I mean, well, kind of in the landing zone right now, but um, it's just never it's never seemed that fascinating to me. It's sort of, I don't know, it's just never really done it. I mean, compared to landing on the moon, it's just, it's not that cool. (laughs) I'm probably going to anger a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, you may press a couple of hot buttons out there. (laughs) Um, If if anybody reads uh, some of what you've written about the X-15, I don't think they'd be upset in the least because, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Gene, but but the X-15 really got my attention as to realizing that we had a spacecraft that that was you know launched at altitude you know yeah. flew on a rocket engine uh, performed basic basic maneuvers to be stable in mm-hmm. a uh, in a in a microgravity environment and then landed like an aircraft I, I mean I knew it was there but I didn't make the connection with space that I that I saw yeah. through your writing well, it was, I mean, the Air Force, of course, it was an Air Force plane. They really wanted to push it into the next sort of NASA space plane, and it just, it was too difficult to develop. I, and I'm sure you've all heard of the dinosaur, but I, I haven't gotten mm-hmm. into it much. But, I mean, that was basically an X-15 on steroids. It did the exact same thing, but it just, it was too expensive to make, and it was going to be too time-consuming. I, I, yeah, I think the, the links between the shuttle, even that it was tested the same flight path for the shuttle landing system tests were the exact same as the X-15 at Edwards Air Force Base, I think is a neat parallel. One thing I noticed reading your blog is that a lot of the stories that you write about tend to lean towards, you know, about landing and landing systems. And to most people, you know, they are more interested in seeing the rocket go up and they could care less about it landing. What is it that fascinates you so much about landing systems? I think in part because nobody does seem to care about it. I mean, it's it's certainly not as exciting as as 
blasting off to the moon or landing on the moon, but everyone needs to come home. I mean, a mission is not complete until you come home. And this is something that is has at least in the popular histories that are out there is just glossed over and no i've never really seen anyone question why the landings were the way they were and how they were done and if there was another way to do it and it just sort of seemed i don't know it seemed a little more interesting than than a lot of these books let on so i started looking into it and realized it was a pretty fascinating question so it's kind of my my current pet project right now so then which way do you think is the best way to land oh i i Definitely think the the shuttle's got the superior landing system. I mean, um, I said I can't. I don't know that much about uh, technically how it lands, like I do with the uh, capsules and the proposed landing systems for capsules on the land. But uh, I mean, it makes so much sense to land it like an airplane. I mean, these guys know how to fly an airplane. There's no huge support crew needed. You can reuse the vehicle. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's it's definitely the the way to go. I'd say. Well, the space shuttle um, is a bit of a glass rocket, more because of the exposure it faces. There's such Mm -hmm. a large footprint of it that has to come back through the hot atmosphere to return to Earth. Um, The capsule was designed to minimize the amount of exposure that um, would need to be built in order to protect the astronauts. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that a capsule landing... Is a safer way to land? Um, it's a maybe, safer design. It's a safer, it's probably, yes, it's, I mean, I agree. It's a safer design and, and a simpler design, certainly. But, um, and this is what I, I've sort of mentioned a little bit in that there were well over 8,000 men on hand to pick John Glenn out of the ocean. I just think the manpower and having to coordinate that kind of recovery force versus having a relatively small crew on the ground to aid the astronauts is probably, I mean, it's a trade-off, and I, I don't really know which one would be best, but I, I, there's well, got to be something in landing, sort of a pilot-controlled landing. But what about the uh, trade-off of the preparation of a craft that, that needs to be prepared to return back to Earth, yeah. bringing astronauts and precious cargo back with them? I mean, <clears throat> ground crews... Uh, Kennedy Space Center will spend months prepping an orbiter, uh, making sure the tiles are exactly in place, um, that the epoxy between them is perfectly spaced and and it all fits together like a very complicated and Hmm. perfect uh, jigsaw puzzle. Uh, Just the, you know, the prepping of the tiles that have to, what the process they have to, how they have to be perfectly baked, x-rayed, make sure that all of the tiles are foolproof and tested and you know that and multiply the size of a shuttle by the yeah. size of a capsule the exposure certainly the manpower for recovery you could almost meet it in the manpower that has to go into prepping such a such a large footprint to return to earth yeah actually, and, it, and i, I never thought there. about the, the dangers of also kind of man rating a reusable vehicle either um no, that's interesting. It's not actually not something I've ever thought about. Hmm. No, you might be very right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, either either way, the shuttle itself. I mean, you've got a the bird itself was designed to well, dare I say, it, to Air Force or or military specifications too. You have to remember mm-hmm. that as well. The the bird wouldn't have been as big as it is today 
um, if it were not for a lot of the military payloads. So, you know, uh, it, it kind of one. Yeah. You have to wonder, too, um, what the bird would have been like had it just been strictly for for civilian applications, because they didn't vision in the beginning, uh, you know, flights out of Vandenberg Air Force Base and things like yeah. that. So, you know, yeah. there, there's a thought. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Actually, I never thought of that either. Yep. I have to look into that. Yep. Um, I just another question. I'm I'm going to veer away, away a little bit though from from all this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just a, a follow up um, to to the idea of the shuttle. You have to remember too. I guess you know the, the programs were two very different programs. Apollo was going to the moon. Mm-hmm. The shuttle was to go ahead. You know, the real main purpose of it. You know, the shuttle really never realized its its uh, uh, I guess its purpose until really really toward the end of its life to go ahead and build the International Space Station mm-hmm. which I which is the the reason you know you don't find the shuttle sort of exciting you know was again it wasn't a trip to somewhere do you think that 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 adds to the malaise a little bit of what we're experiencing now uh, it doesn't seem to me that that space is in the in the forefront anymore, and you know people are like, yeah, well, so what? Um, is that the reason? Do you think the reason why? Um, I, I, I maybe I'm, I'm I'm phrasing this in a rather awkward manner, but do you think the reason why that you know we don't have a lot of enthusiasm for the space program currently is because the space shuttle, in your estimation, is kind of ho hum? I think I think in part. I mean. I mean, like I said, I've, I've grown up with the space shuttle going all the time. That it, it sort of almost seems routine, and I just I don't think it's it has the same level of excitement, and there isn't as much at stake as I imagine sort of was ripping through the country when Apollo was aiming towards the moon. Um, I think I mean may, maybe it is this sort of exploration spirit and this this desire to discover something new that kind of unites people and that without having that on a very big scale it's hard to for maybe the the every man in America to be behind the, the space program in the same way as as they had been in the past okay um, just, I don't right. think that's because the space shuttle is boring I think that's because NASA once again is a victim of its own success Mm-hmm. They've made space travel seem routine. Certainly, putting yeah. seven astronauts into space, oh, five, six, seven times a year, is is certainly not um, unexciting. It may be become routine versus, um, you know, a moon landing. Which, and let's face it, after Apollo 11, Apollo 12 was a flawless mission, which people tuned out because, you know, the first, the only, you know, you can only have one first. And yeah. that was over. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the interest in Apollo dropped way off. I mean, you know, they, and they canceled the last three missions because they just couldn't sustain an interest and lost a lot of funding. So, yeah. I, I don't know, maybe they set the bar really high for themselves. <laughs> I guess I guess really the the next uh, the next set of questions I had was in reference to the um, the, the 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 infamous debate uh, on the on the one way trip to Mars. We've kind of mm-hmm. sort of de- we've kind of sort of debated that on and off. I'm not a a, a huge fan of the idea. Kind of re- kind of is reminiscent of uh, 
uh, one of the 1960s plans for going to the moon, which was, you know, uh, sort of coined the poor slob plan, where you would have a lone astronaut going to the moon on a one-way trip, and then occasionally, you know, uh, you know, foodstuffs, water experiments would be flown up there, while, you know, a, a way of devising you know, while we yeah. figure out a way to bring them back home. Uh, and believe me, they were volunteers for that mission. And I kind of wonder about their sanity. Um, and NASA really never really considered it for, for you know, the obvious reasons. Um, the one-way trip to Mars, to me, kind of sort of sounds like the same thing. Can you go ahead and explain what your view is on that? Um, I, mean, I, ha- I have to agree that I think it's... I, don't, I almost want to say it's kind of creepy. I, there's something that, I mean, it, it's exciting and, and kind of a fascinating way to approach the problem of wanting to visit Mars and have a, a manned presence there and bring back real-time, or well, as real-time as you can get with that time delay research without having to, you know, spend four years to drive a rover a mile and a half. Um, but I just, I can't, I can't quite, I mean, trying to imagine the mentality of being the last person alive on that planet with all of the the three other crew members having passed or something. It just, I, I think it's a little bit terrifying. Um, I, I don't think I'm amazed. I think I heard somewhere and I can't remember where I saw or, or heard or read this, that there were over 4,000 people who said that they would be willing to volunteer for this kind of a mission. There was a, a poll done and I'm, I'm a little bit impressed that that many people would be willing to go up there. I don't know. Would, would you yeah. go? Yeah, we we had we had that we we had that debate uh, here. I guess it was about maybe two weeks ago when when, when that survey was released, and and I, I I actually fired something on on Twitter. It was like these you know the people who volunteered to go. I really want to talk to these people. Yeah. And you know, just just to see what what, what their motivations were, uh, one half jokingly said, "Well, if my wife's not going, uh, you know, ha ha." But um, the uh, but the, uh, the, the the you know, in 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 all honesty, I think the idea was was to go ahead and just have this little pioneering spirit and all this other stuff. But yeah, you know, you know, the the the, the other analogy was. Uh, you know the whole idea with the covered wagons going west and all this. You know, with mm-hmm. nothing but the clothes on their backs and uh, you know all these romantic notions. But, uh, it, but to us, it just seemed not, to be a terrifying <laughs> prospect. But it's not the same as going. You know, discovering a new world. I mean, when you know the the 14th century explorers crossed oceans, they could still breathe the air and they could still till the land, and they knew that they they were going to have a, a means to live when they got there. It's not it's not quite the same on Mars, and it's a little bit. I just have to wonder. I mean, if, even if people are willing to sort of tap into their adventurous spirit and go up there, what happens in three years when they start to panic? I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah. feel, I feel like it's it, it's fraught with problems. I mean, it's a really interesting idea, but I don't know. Maybe. Another question I had here. Um, there was a, a, a post here you had uh, uh, putting the bucks back in Buck Rogers, and this is something that we've been talking about all, for a long time, too. I'm actually kind of surprised that uh, uh, you had some problems with an instructor back then uh, with the right stuff there. I have a love-hate relationship with that book, but uh, – um, anyway, what, what do you really think that we should be doing? How, how are we going to go ahead and get the 
bucks back into Buck Rogers because right now it just seems to us that that we're we're kind of we're kind of stuck in a lurch. We still really don't know what we want to do in space. All we want to do is build cheap means of getting there. Yeah. Um, what do what do you what do you think we should be doing? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's kind of a big question. Um, yeah. I I mean I, I've seen some some proposals for sort of land. I mean I think I think a lot of the unmanned stuff proposal wise I've, I've seen recently are, are a little bit more interesting um just in terms of the sample return from mars and that sam i don't know did they actually return a sample from an asteroid i can't remember if i read if that worked or not hayabusa sort of did but uh, just it was just a couple of grams yeah. so um because of i believe there was a failure on the yeah. uh, on the on the mechanism that was supposed to go ahead and retract the the sample and bring it into the vehicle so right. Right. But they did get a few grams out of that, but it was yeah. it was something, you know. So a follow up, I believe there's a follow up mission planned. Mm-hmm. I I think I think if I think there's got to be something really interesting that's sort of within a a realistic time frame and and budget that everyone can sort of get behind because it I don't know I guess there just needs to be a direction, but I I don't know what would be sort of a a good way to do it. I would really like to see a, a probe on Titan. Actually, I know that's sort of been like talking for a while, but did it get there? Yeah, you, you've you've kind of read my mind a little bit. Um, yeah. I think there's that. some really neat stuff in the outer solar system. I would I would love to see returning from, but yeah, well, there, I'm, I'm not sure what should fall the space shuttle though. I don't know. One thing I, I have to one one comment in that uh, article kind of stood out though it was it was toward the end. You said I would sooner get behind a Canadian style healthcare system in, in the United States than a manned flight to the to Mars. Why 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 is that? Why do you think Mars may not be the goal here? Oh, I I was uh, that was more in a reference to I think there are a lot of things within the country that need more immediate attention than maybe a manned mission to Mars just in terms of how much it's going to cost to for a manned mission to Mars versus non-manned mission that I mean I've I've only been living in the states for 6 months and this is the one thing that has jumped out like right in my face is the healthcare system and the difference from Canada so that was sort of high on my mind um <laughs> but I just I I just think there are some things within the country that should merit a little bit more attention than the money that would be spent on on some of the more out out there proposals so in in, in your estimation <laughs> in in your estimation then uh, a, a a piloted trip to mars would be one of those out there proposals if if that's indeed the case then what would be the thing you would want to insert in there as far as uh, or or what do you think the direction really should be uh, are we looking looking at a return return to the lunar surface? Are we you know, or are we on the right track now with leveraging the ISS as long as we can, and and then trying to figure out what we can do from there? Um, I I would have to say your option B is probably the best. Um, I mean there that there's some interesting stuff with the ISS. There is a, a base up there to build from. Maybe might be a, an interesting place to start. I just I'm not. I'm not totally sure what would be the best outlet for the manned space program. I'm not I'm not necessarily convinced that returning to the moon would be a, a 
significant step in any direction without sort of a next step in place. And maybe maybe it would be sort of the first step towards uh, a mission to Mars, but, um, in which case it would be a shorter term sort of way to do it. But I don't know. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm giving you really bad answers. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is hey, it's your opinion. It's all good. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Actually, um, as you're kind of discussing about this, you know, you're saying that, you know, I know you just moved to the United States six months ago from Canada. Actually, surprisingly, our second guest uh, this year that's already been from Canada. But mm-hmm. um, how is that affecting your view on the United States space program? Because you've been looking at it from, you know, a foreigner's point of view looking outside at NASA we're looking at it from sort of you know inside the country how's that yeah. changed your view on it I think I still look at it from oh I'm, I'm my mom's actually from the state so I've I've grown up sort of with both national identities a little bit more definitely more Canadian but I've always sort of looked at the space program from a bit of a foreign perspective, I think. That's why I have a bit of a hard time using sort of the possessive we went to the moon as opposed to the U.S. Um, I mean, it's, it's a bit interesting to sort of be able to look. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making this up, but I feel like it helps me look a little bit more openly at both comparing the U.S. and the Soviet space programs as opposed to, to sort of being with an ingrained feeling of one as better than the other, maybe. I think it's it's let me bring some balance into my reading. I think that might be the one the one way it's been different. Speaking of your reading, what was really your opinion of the book, The Right Stuff? Because I, I again, I have a <laughs> I, I have a love hate relationship with that novel. I re- with with that. I'm sorry, it's not a novel. My apologies. Um, I really have a love hate relationship with with what Tom Wolfe wrote. But but uh, and and I, I just want to hear your yours. I'll I'll fire off mine afterward. <laughs> Um, I kind I kind of love it because I kind of think he does a really good job at just latching on and just running with the excitement of it. And I mean, my my parents who lived through it say that it's pretty close to how it felt to be seeing this stuff happening as it was going. And um, but I, I also sort of see the liberties he takes, and the more I read about. I mean, the more I read the mission transcripts and see how much liberty he's taken, it kind of bugs right. me that this is the big thing that everyone thinks happened when it's really not. It's, I mean, it's it's funny. Wally Shiraz's memoirs, um, Shiraz Space, he really just kind of rips into Tom Wolfe about it and gets really angry at the way he, they've all been represented in the book. Um, so that's kind of interesting. But even a lot of the astronauts aren't fans of it. But I think it's a great tool. Um I just did it, took a class last term at ASU that it was actually a reading for the course. And I think it's a great book to get kids who might not know or care about space interested in it because it really does do a good job at pointing out the ways in which it's exciting and different and what's really new. He's a great writer. Yeah, he he is. You know, he, yeah. he does he does know how to how to put sentences together. Yeah. God bless him. But uh, I think he gave, gave uh, uh, Gus Grissom a bit of a bad rap personally. Mm-hmm. But that's 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 just me. I guess uh, obviously the you know it was proven with the uh, with the hatch. Then indeed it could have just went. And and yeah. I, I thought uh, Tom Wolfe was very very uh, unforgiving to, to yeah. Gus Grissom in that regard. And of course, the movie just exacerbates everything. Oh yeah, I mean the movie—that that, exactly. The movie I, I thought was, 
Oh, don't get me started about the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's great and fun, but it's just it just bugs me in a lot of ways. Yeah, me too. Yeah, because yeah. I literally just finished reading the book and I watched the movie first before then. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Did you you had some anger afterwards? <laughs> uh, a little a little frustration with it, yeah. 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 While we're back in the uh, in that era talking about Mercury, in one of your posts, I read the magnitude of the recovery force that was that was part of um, John Glenn's flight, the number of ships and the number of men. Can you uh, kind of paint a picture for us about that? Um, it's I never really realized how huge the recovery forces were. And, um, I mean, I should preface this, that Mercury had significantly larger recovery forces than Apollo. Actually, Apollo 15 only had four ships. Um, but the way the way NASA had to work it, they didn't know if there was going to be an emergency abort or if there was going to be adverse weather and landing conditions in one of the primary zones. So they actually had um, primary, secondary, and contingency zones set up in a, a pretty solid band spanning the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. I think the astronauts had something like 15 or 17 different spots they could land in. Um, and each of these spots had to be manned by a number of ships. Um, there were also Air Force planes and Marine helicopters involved. And they it, they couldn't go out sort of right before landing. They had to be on hand in case of a launch abort. So they would go out days before the the mission actually launched so there were without including the the men at nasa and the people who were manning the uh the worldwide tracking network there were for john glenn i think i calculated and this is a very modest estimate of eight thousand men in the ocean alone this is not including the air force or the marines this is only from the navy and 20 i think 27 ships or something i mean it was just a huge number of people that had to be on hand for this one guy. And I mean, Glenn was not exactly a, a, an unseasoned pilot. I mean, he could land, he probably could have landed anything given the chance. And it's, it really does create a, a weird balance. These guys being plucked out of the ocean, like wet dogs when they're some of the most skilled men the country had to offer for this job. So I saw one of your pictures that you had. Uh, I'm trying to remember the title of that blog. Uh, was it designing uh, help me out oh, the one John, about John Glenn's landing no uh, with where they were selecting the astronauts where it showed him in a bow tie walking oh up. <laughs> it's it's I think it's called designing astronauts if I yeah. remember title yeah he always rocked the bow tie he had he had good style and they they really were some of the best that that yeah. America had and yeah. you know I think of them as the the top pilots in the country and here they are going up in a capsule that they're virtually a passenger in, Yeah. at, at least in Mercury. I know Gemini, they had some control and flight capabilities. You mentioned Wally Shira, and I remember some of the notes from uh, from his book about uh, about being able to actually fly the, the ship and how, how well it did. Yeah. I'm not I'm not I'm not quite a physicist, but they it was imbued with a certain amount of lift that they could sort of manipulate the capsule to get more or less lift and actually be pretty good at pinpointing a landing within a specific zone. So, um, so I think Gemini is so interesting. It's it actually for a capsule did some really amazing things, even in an aerodynamic capacity for an unaerodynamic body. So it's kind of a neat, it's a really neat program. 
I saw your picture with the Regalo wing mm-hmm. on the Gemini, but that was one of the landing concepts that never, never uh, saw. Yeah. The, yeah. Saw and this, flight. this, this was one of the, the things I found that actually spurred, sorry, you were asking what made me study landings. This was one of the things that I saw in a footnote. I can't remember which book it was in, but I, I, I've never, I'd never come across this before, and the more I looked into it, I didn't realize that NASA had actually spent 165 million 1964, I think it was dollars, developing this program that literally never left the ground. It just, the, the theory of this thing was quite simple. It's just a, a two-lobed sail over the spacecraft that would um, shift the spacecraft relative to the mated configuration center of gravity, and they could land it on, on a runway with these teeny tiny wheels that would pop out from the capsule, and it just it never, it never quite worked. The sails ripped, and um, they even built a training vehicle for the astronauts, and they proved the concept that it could land, but it just, it could not be ready in time. And they kept pushing it. They were going to try and work it into Apollo, and then into the Apollo Applications Program, and the Air Force is going to try to use it for their manned orbiting laboratory, and it just, it never went anywhere. When we're talking about the uh, forces that the Navy had out there for recovery of the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did you catch in your research? Was there any uh, security concerns? Because this was during the Cold War with the Soviets, and us being on hand. Did we kind of uh, guard that recovery area, or did you? You know what I'm getting at. I'm just curious about that aspect of international relationships with with that. Um. Sorry, what do you mean by guarding the area? Well, did the U.S. ships have to uh, kind of protect the splash splashdown zone? Uh, did they have concerns about the Soviets trying to infiltrate a, an area that they were, uh, you know, waiting for a, a capsule to land? I'm actually not sure. This isn't something I've I've come across. Um, again, the I'm still kind of catching up with the political aspects of the the space history I've been studying. Um, so I'm not actually sure, although I, I did read somewhere that the Soviets, part of part of their choice to land on land was that the only available ocean they would have would be international waters, which was a less appealing option than Soviet waters, which are, of course, in the Arctic Circle. Um, so I'm not, I'm not actually sure if there was much activity sort of of Soviet ships trying to spy or or you know hone in on the american recovery forces yeah i don't know of course i guess with 23 ships in the atlantic for john glenn's flight that uh, <laughs> they didn't really have to worry about competition too much they kind of had the uh the place to themselves yeah they they had a pretty good uh they could get pretty much anywhere near the guy pretty fast if they had to just as a follow-up comment to that, I know for a fact because I I because I, I, I found the the tapes I was recording uh, back from STS one, uh, two Russian uh, fishing trawlers did shadow uh, the two uh, SRB recovery ships. Oh. Yeah. So that was, really? I, 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 yeah. So that was that was kind of interesting. They did see two um, to, uh, Russian fishing trawlers kind of sort of just shadowing both. The uh, the SRB recovery ships, so I I found that kind of uh, kind of fascinating. Yeah, you know, again, this was still the. Have to remember, it was 1981. The Cold World War was still percolating. So yeah, 
um, you know, they were probably saying, hmm, wonder if we can get in on this and see if there's there's anything, you know, that we can we can, you know, glean from from any of that. Yeah. Uh, Amy, how how would you characterize your, yourself? Um, you know, do you characterize yourself as a as a wannabe sort of journalist? Do you characterize yourself as a um, you know, a space policy or a wonk or, or sort of like myself, you know, who's a frustrated uh, space policy wonk or um, uh, or a, a frustrated space historian like myself, too. So <laughs> how, do you, um, how, do you, how do you characterize yourself? I would classify myself as a, a an aspiring space historian or space writer. Um, I, it's I just think there are a lot of aspects of the history of man in space, not necessarily just American, that are really fascinating and just aren't out there because they're the less strictly exciting aspects of the the space programs. Um, And I I would just love to be able to write books about that stuff for for people to get other people excited about it. So that's how I would look at myself. Um, it, it, that article, uh, designing the perfect astronaut. What do you? What elements, in your your estimation, do to your research and all that? Uh, what what factors would would make the perfect astronaut? Would make the perfect astronaut now or then? Um, either or both. Hmm. Um, I mean, aside from the the obvious needing to be fairly physically fit to withstand some pretty severe tests to the you know, human body of space travel. Um, I don't know, I guess someone that's pretty even keeled and has a sense of humor because going to be in some pretty awful situations at some point. And I don't know. I mean, I want to say plays well with others and can speak to people would probably be the most important, important qualities. I mean, being able to communicate not only to your crew, but if you're going to be in the public eye to be able to hold your own and not, not panic or something, but I think, yeah. I don't know, all-around good guy is kind of a, a cop-out answer, but all-around <laughs> good guy. <laughs> Got another question. Uh, kind of ask you to paint another picture for us, if you would. Um, I, I read what you uh, had in your blog about Yuri Gagarin and his Vostok 1 flight, and I never really thought of, of anyone particularly having problems with spaceflight. Of course, Apollo 13 stands out to us, uh, you know, at, at this point and, 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 you know, some tragic events with the shuttle. But mm-hmm. uh, how about Yuri Gagarin and his, his first flight? Was that the one that uh, was, was near a disaster? I never realized that. Um, there, was, there was a problem in his, in his descent stage at some point, and he... So the, the Soviets... It, had to eject from this capsule as it was falling and land by their own parachute, um, which to me is just the most terrifying way to return from space. Um, but for something had happened and he ended up having to eject early and landed miles and miles from his, his touchdown point and I mean, just landing in, in somebody's farmyard and having a woman come out and say, are you from space? Because she'd never seen this man in a bright orange suit with a giant parachute suspending him before, and just and sort of just having that that be the way that you have to come back. Um, and what's really interesting about that is that, of course, the Soviets didn't say anything about that. The the official releases was that everything was perfect. So it was only, I think, in the 70s that it was it was sort of made public that 
Gagarin did actually have this really difficult landing and that the systems didn't work as perfectly as they were supposed to. And he, he did have a rather risky landing and a, a lot of the Soviets actually had some pretty um, difficult landings. I think I mentioned um, Alexei Leonov and Pavel Belyaev, I think his name is, and I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong. Um, landed and they, they landed in the Ural mountains somewhere and actually had to fight off wolves all night because the snow was too high for the recovery team to find them. I mean, it's the, the problems that some of the Soviets had in their landings are just unbelievable. When you think of, you know, you, the Americans landed in the ocean and maybe the worst case was um, Scott Carpenter sort of hanging out for an hour in a raft eating a candy bar versus spending a night in the mountains in, you know, minus 30 degree weather or something. It's just, it's a, it's a very different experience and a really, it's, it's really interesting how they, the different ways that these two programs chose to do it or, or were forced to do it for whatever reason and the, the difficulties that arose from that. And the, the Voshkod 2, I believe it was, that you're referring yeah. to that landed yeah. in the mountains, they landed in a tree. And were suspended all night. <laughs> Yeah, um, the heat from the the heat shield on the spacecraft melted some of the snow until they realized that, great, we have a little valley, but we can't walk through this. And putting on as many layers under their spacesuits as they could, with the hatch already blown and exposed to the elements. And um, I can't remember what month that was in, but either way, up in the, uh, I mean, Russia's cold. <laughs> that that must have been the least pleasant way to, to return to home from a space flight. Kind of gives uh, a little greater value or appreciation for uh, realizing that that pilots and early astronauts and even our, our current astronauts, I think they have some amount mm-hmm. of survival training. Absolutely, and, uh, they sure needed it there. Yeah, I, I mean, it's still. I, I would be surprised if anyone didn't have some survival training who went into space. I mean, the problems can come up anytime. I mean, landing somewhere else can can sort of force you to tap into a lot of your survival instincts. I mean, I, I know the little I do know is that the sort of first two and three groups of NASA astronauts did all sorts of desert survival training, which is harsh. But, I mean, preparedness is key. <laughs> How long have you been uh, working in, in writing regarding space flight and, and science? Um. Well, I, I've really been sort of writing and studying spaceflight from an academic perspective since um, so 22, I'm 25 now, um, with my undergrad thesis and continued that in my master's degree and only recently decided to pursue um, writing as a, a sort of end in itself. So not horribly long, but my I've, I've been reading and sort of toying around with and learning about spaceflight since about the age of seven. So it's been a long-standing interest that's only recently found a, a proper outlet, I think. Well, do me a favor here. You probably surprise me, but how much uh, I come from a, a technical field, not one that involves a lot of the traditional uh, studies and things that are part of education uh, for quite some time, actually. I'm just in a, I'm in a technical field. It's a different world that I'm in. Mm-hmm. How much... Um, how much reading have you done for some of these uh, writings that you've posted talking about the space race and, and Mercury and 
Gemini and those, how much reading is involved? A lot. Um, a, a lot of it is, I mean, I've, I've done a fair bit of research for my last sort of three years of school. So that's, that's been good is that I have a lot of the reading under my belt, but I, I mean, I don't have any real background in science, so a lot of it is me trying to figure out how these things actually work so that I can understand it myself and then write it in a way that people who are also non-scientists and non-tech people can understand it. Um, so there's a lot of that, but there's also, I mean, when I wrote about John Glenn's recovery forces, I I had a vague idea that there were 20-plus ships on hand for him, but it was... I spent a day trying to figure out the different kinds of Navy ships and reading all this, um, asking people I knew who know about naval history where I could go. So there's there's a fair bit of research that actually goes into each of these posts, probably yeah, probably more than it would maybe seem, but I, I try to keep as much as factually accurate as possible. I, I would hate to be, to lie on my blog, so... I do make sure that my facts are straight and that I do give sources so that if anyone wants to know more where I got my information, it's there. I think you do a great job. Oh, I've thanks. got a, I got a question uh, that um, I'm, I'm sure if if Gina's six-year-old son were on with us, uh, you could have a probably a discussion. But who's your favorite astronaut? <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. That's that's also something I've never really thought about or been asked. Um, I think favorite in terms of most interesting to study, I would have to pick Jim Lovell. Um, his his flights, his Gemini and Apollo flights, are some of the more interesting um, in terms of being firsts and in terms of being the the most epic disasters. And um, some pretty interesting stuff has come from those missions. So he is actually someone that I come across a lot. Um, yeah, prob- I, that would be my off-the-cuff answer. So, Gina, would Amy go over okay with your son? He's got his favorites, or Ed White and uh, Al mm-hmm. Bean. Oh, I do love Al Bean. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty amazing that an artist finally went to the moon and has been able to come back and bring the images he saw to life. Amy, I lied. One more. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, fine. Go ahead. Uh, where do you where do you see yourself being? You know, looking at your crystal ball there for a moment. Where do oh. you see yourself being in about maybe five, ten years down the line? Oh, I would I would love to see myself actually being able to, oh, dare I say, succeed as a writer. Um, it's it's something that I it's really hard to sort of envision that <laughs> being possible. But I would I would love to be able to write as for a living. Yeah, yeah. That's that's you, you've got a you, you know we're kind of birds of a feather that way. You know, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm sort of a sort of a uh, a frustrated uh, you know uh, space journalist slash writer yeah. slash whatever. So so we're we're kind of birds of a feather that way. That's yeah. so kind of interesting. <laughs> Do you think it's time for me to ask the typical hardest question that we give every guest? I think so. Sawyer, go for it. All right, brace yourself. This is the hardest question we ask every guest. Is there anything okay. of yours that you wish to plug? <laughs> um, can I, is plugging my blog acceptable? By all means. Anything that you're working on, anything that you'd like people to visit or check out? Um, well, the, the most, the biggest thing I've got going is my blog. It's called Vintage Space, V-I-N-T-A-G-E-S-P-A-C-E dot wordpress dot com. Um, 
and that's sort of where I'm trying to break myself of my academic writing and find sort of playing around as I try and actually write more. Yeah. How about Twitter? I know. Uh, oh yeah, Twitter. Twitter is, <laughs> Twitter is Twitter. Twitter's sort of a new thing, but uh, it's very new to me. I'm not. I'm still not used to Twitter. Um, I think my Twitter name is small a s t capital v vintage capital s space so that's where all my blog posts also publish on twitter so that's probably a good place to follow from some of our listeners will be in the show notes great go ahead mark i was just going to say you'll probably uh, find some engagement from from people that listen to our show there that'd be great i'm all i'm so happy to sort of reach out to more people and yeah that's what I want to do is reach out to more people about space so sounds like we're on we're on the same mission Amy so again (laughs) (laughs) great it's nice to have a kindred spirit Uh uh-huh thank you for joining us Amy and for um talking taking the kind of turning the clock back yeah well thank you so much for having me this was a really great experience I've enjoyed it and that's another episode of Talking Space. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Thank you, Gina, for joining us tonight. Anytime, Mark. And it, it's kind of like a coin toss. Do I uh, do I go to Sawyer or do I go to Gene? Do I go to Sawyer? Do I go to Gene? It feels like I ought to go to Sawyer last. So, Gene, uh, any closing comments from you? Yeah, Mark, thanks. Uh, Amy, and again, thanks for being on tonight. And uh, just a, just an aside, uh, I wasn't with you guys last week for a, uh, a real, you know, uh, real sad reason. Uh, we had a we had a death in the family here, and I got so many, uh, you know, direct messages on Twitter and a lot of email uh, into my personal email box with people uh, sending condolence mes- messages and messages of encouragement. And uh, I just want to say, you know, to everybody who did that and you know who you all are, uh, it, it, I really do appreciate the, the support through all of that. And, and we're, we're, we're licking our wounds, but we're moving on again. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, Sawyer, for joining us tonight. Appreciate your input and uh, take it away. No problem. I hope you saved the best for last on this one. (laughs) Anyway, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.